You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. It's November 24th, 2022, and we're back with a new installment of our Supreme Court briefing with Nadia Fendi, a partner at BLG and a member of the CBA's Federal Courts Bench and Bar Liaison Committee. Welcome back, Nadia. Great to be back, Eve. The Supreme Court has a new executive legal officer, Stéphanie Bachand, who succeeds René Thériault, who after a four-year stint at the court was named to the Quebec Superior Court. But for the benefit of our listeners, what is the role of the executive legal officer? Yes, that's actually a very good question, Eve. I don't know that everyone knows exactly all the various roles and positions that exist at the court that surround the chief justice and also the judges. So the executive legal officer or the ELO, as it's known in some circle, acts as basically principal advisor to the chief justice, supporting him or her and their duties um, as it relates to the administration of the court, but also um, as a head of the federal judiciary. And so here, Ms. Bachan uh, would assist the Chief Justice in his capacity as president of the Canadian Judicial Council, uh, a member of the Board of Governors of the National Judicial Institute, and also the Advisory Council for the Order of Canada. She is also responsible for media relations at the court, in addition to supporting the court's international relations uh, and carrying out, you know, any other duties that the Chief Justice may assign to her. And so what, and what do we know about Stephanie Bachon? Well, it looks like she has quite a broad and extensive professional background, actually, and a lot of qualification that will assist her in her new job. She, uh, she was a lawyer in private practice. Uh, she was a diplomat. She acted as Chief of Staff and, and Senior Policy Advisor to top executive in the federal public service. Uh, she, she was also a law clerk for judges on international court. And if I look back, I mean, the, the, I think the last position she was at before joining the court was as first secretary francophonie at Canada's embassy in France. And so I think that will come in handy for those international relations uh, that the court has with you know, other countries and other international courts. So, so essentially a chief of staff uh, sort of position, but with perhaps... Um uh, also a, a media component to to the role. Correct, correct. That's exactly what it is. So l- let's move on to the, the court's work. I want to talk briefly about interventions. The court uh, recently gave reasons for denying leave to a number of groups, including the CBA, in the matter of the Northwest Territories Francophone School Board regarding uh, the territory's role in denying some some children access to its schools what's happening there? What, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, this case will be a very interesting case. Uh, we can talk about it maybe on another podcast. It's being heard in February of next year. And I would say that for the first time in a pretty long time, the court declined intervention and gave a set of reasons. They're short and brief, but still it gives reasons. And so in this case, just by way of background, as you mentioned, it involves Section 23 rights under the Charter But one of the additional issues, actually, that was raised, that's being raised in the case, is whether the right to use French in the territory's courts includes the right to be understood directly without interpreter. And that stems from what took place at the Court of Appeal. And I invite our listeners to take a look at the factum from the appellant because it's quite compelling in describing what took place there and what they allege was a violation of their right to be heard in French. And so it's on that issue that several intervener group 
uh, attempted to intervene at the court. And, and the court, interestingly, or, you know, frankly, probably uh, very disappointed for those group, denied leave for, to several organizations, as you mentioned, the Canadian Bar, but also La Fédération des Associations de Juristes d'Expression Française de Common Law, La Société de la Francophonie Manitobaine, L'Association des Juristes d'Expression Française du Manitoba, as well as the Association des Juristes d'Expression Française du Nouveau-Brunswick. And, and for all of these groups, what the court says, and, and this was Justice Rowe issuing the order, said that basically these groups were attempting to raise new issues that were not raised by the parties. And so um, it, it noted that these intervention, if allowed, would have had the effect of expanding the case. And the court reiterated that interveners are not entitled to raise new issues or adduce further evidence or otherwise supplement the record. And, and just for our listeners, these three, uh, these group of, uh, of, of proposed interveners were basically trying to raise different issues related to this issue of being heard in French. Some of them were proposing to speak about Section 133 of the Constitution, which deals with this concept of of being heard in French and English. Some were proposing to deal with Section 23 of the Manitoba Act. And then uh, another group of them were proposing to deal with Section 16 and 20 of the Charter. All provisions and issues that touch upon this concept of the right to use French. And so um, I would say that surprising, although, you know, maybe this is the court trying to remind people of, you know, the direction that it issued last year and, and kind of reminding about the scope of interveners and their specific role. And yet the scope of interveners, though, is supposed to be, I mean, I guess it has to be constrained to some extent, but it shouldn't overlap directly on the arguments of the, of, of the parties either, or am I, am, I, am, I, am I misframing that? No, 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 you are absolutely correct. In fact, that's what the court tells us in that November 2021 direction that it issued. It reminds us that, you know, intervener submission have to be useful and they have to be different from those of the parties. So I think the struggle for interveners is it's this balancing act between, okay, we have to be useful and different, but also we're told we can't, you know, uh, introduce new issues now or, or new evidence or new facts. And so I think it is a bit of a struggle. Uh, how do you manage those two things and, and be helpful and frankly also represent the interest of the organization that you're uh, representing? So I, I think it will be interesting to see, Eve, what comes next from the court uh, on that front and whether or not the court gives us additional guidance. It is a struggle when you're acting for a proposed intervener to navigate that balance and you know, ensure that you get leave ultimately also at the court. Uh, what uh, decisions released by the court stood out for you in the last few weeks? I, I mean, the first one for sure that, that, that I will come to in a moment is Sharma. I think everyone's been talking about that. But before we jump into Sharma, I thought I would just mention a couple of cases. One is the Annapolis versus Halifax case. And this is a case that deals with the concept of expropriation and in that decision, the court had to look at whether state regulation of land can create a constructive taking of private property in the context of an appeal from a summary judgment. And, and the takeaways, I mean, there's a few of them that I think are important for the law of constructive taking. One is 
the court confirms that constructing taking doesn't require actual acquisition of the land. So that's one. Uh, two, um, it also confirms that the, the concept of beneficial interest in or flowing from the property means an advantage. So that's important. And then three, it also, though it's not an element of the test, it, it clarifies that the intention of the public authority is a relevant factor. And then finally, it talks about the application requiring a realistic appraisal of matters in context, uh, focusing on, on the substance over form when considering the effect um, and the advantages of the regulatory measure in a particular case. So I think it, it's an interesting case. The last time the court had looked at this concept uh, was back in 2006 in the CP case. So, um, you know, interesting takeaways and hopefully a bit of clarification for all of those folks that practice in this kind of uh, municipal area. The one thing I would say is, is the case, in my view, highlights the, the ongoing tension between, you know, municipal's authority to zone and regulate land and the interest of landowners to use their land as they see fit. So I think that uh, the majority hints at this broader interpretation of what loss of all reasonable use means. So we will have to see how, how this decision then gets applied by the lower courts. But that's kind of one that I wanted to touch on. Another one that uh, also was recently, just a, a few weeks ago, released is the Peace River Hydro Petro West, uh, an interesting decision that deals with the intersection between insolvency and arbitration. Um, so in, in that case, uh, I think that there's a few concepts that come out of it in terms of uh, when will the um, when will the court uh, stay a proceeding? as a result of an arbitration uh, provision. And so I think that it, it's, it's interesting in there. The court basically confirms the two-part framework test that applies. Um, and, and it looks also at the provision of the Arbitration Act. Um, and so, uh, again, I, I think that one thing that, that comes out clearly from this decision and this dispute, frankly, is, is the fact that there's this tension in this case between arbitration and insolvency law um, but the court confirms that valid arbitration agreement should generally be respected. Uh, but however, in certain insolvency matters where the arbitration would compromise the efficient conduct of a court order receivership, then there may be necessary to preclude the arbitration. Um, so again, I think an interesting corporate case. Um, should we talk about Sharma? Yeah, let's talk about Sharma. <laughs> so I think Sharma has led to, as our listeners will know, to a significant uh, amount of, of feedback. And, and I think a lot of people have been writing about it. Um, and so by way of reminder, this is a decision that was a 5-4 split where the court upheld the constitutionality of, of certain provision of the criminal code, which were amended in 2012. And, and limit the access to conditional sentences for certain classes of offense. And, and in my view, uh, there were really three main issues that the majority addressed. And this is a case that dealt with Section 15 um, in the Section 15 framework. So three things. You know, the court had to look at whether the claimant must prove that an impugn law or state cause conduct um, caused the disproportionate impact on the claimant. Then two, it had to also look at whether the entire legislative context is relevant to the Section 15.1 inquiry. And most importantly, I think, 
whether Section 15.1 imposes a positive obligation on the legislator to enact remedial legislation, and related to that, whether the legislator can incrementally address disadvantage. And it's really um, the majority's comment, I think, on that last issue that attracted the most attention. Uh, on the issue of the scope of the state's obligation to remedy social inequalities, I mean, the court concluded, the majority concluded that Section 15 doesn't impose a general or positive obligation on the state to remedy social inequalities, uh, where it otherwise, and courts would be impermissibly pulled into the complex legislative domain of policy is what the majority tells us. Um, further, they, they emphasize that incrementalism is deeply grounded in charter prudence and that a legislator you know, must be given some sort of reasonable leeway to deal with the problems one step at a time. Um, in contrast to that, the dissent found that you know, the, the impudent section of the criminal code infringed uh, Section 15 because they did impair the remedial effect uh, which directs a judge of, of that specific provision of the criminal code that was at issue, which directs judges to consider alternative to imprisonment, which particular attention to the circumstance of the Aboriginal offenders. Um, I think that, you know, it's, what really drew a lot of attention is the fact that the majority decision doesn't recognize this positive obligation on the state to remedy social inequalities. And and, and that is what attracted a good deal of attention, Eve, and criticism, fr fr frankly, particularly from some of the interveners' public interest group that spoke to the growing rate of over-incarceration of Indigenous people in Canada. Um, and, and those interveners highlighted that the decision, you know, would have serious repercussion on Indigenous people, as frankly, the dissent did in this case. Um, so I think it, 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 it really is... Um, an important decision, especially in, in with respect to the incarceration of Indigenous people. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it will, we will have to see whether or not the application of the test under Section 15.1 in the future really is, is totally altered, because in this case, the court didn't actually look at the entirety of the two-step test. You know, just by way of reminder for everyone, the two-step test requires us, one, to to um, demonstrate that the impugn law or the state action creates a distinction based on one of those enumerated grounds, and two, that it imposes a burden or denies a benefit in a matter that has an effect uh, of reinforcing or exacerbating disadvantage. And the court didn't go to the second step of the test because it found that in this case, the first step of the test, Ms. Sharma had failed to satisfy. Um, and so it didn't go beyond that. And I think what really struck me, and I think what others as well, is, is that portion of the majority's decision where while the court recognizes the crisis of Indigenous incarceration, um, the court basically says, and I think it's important to quote, it says, while Ms. Sharma adduced no statistical information to demonstrate that the impugned provision create or contribute to increased imprisonment of Indigenous offenders. And this is what a lot of critics have taken issue with. Uh, the dissent, on the other hand, says, look, you don't need expert evidence or evidence of statistical disparity. Um, and, and so, and refers back to the decision of the court in Fraser. So I think, again, we will have to see what the... I would have presumed, I would have presumed that evidence would be available, though. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. As you know, these cases, sometimes these issues come up 
after the trial has taken place, right? That is the challenge of some of these cases. Sometimes, you know, when you're in the heat of the trial, maybe it's not the issue that comes up, it's something that comes up later on. I have to confess, I would have to go back to see whether or not that was something that the parties at the trial level had canvassed. But I think you're right. I think there's no doubt and everyone knows. And in fact, that's what all these interveners intervened on, right? They actually brought forward all these issues. And in fact, I do think coming back to our conversation about intervention, um, there were 21 interveners in Charma and the majority of the court actually criticized some of the submission by the interveners parties. And if you look at, and I think it's paragraph 75 of the decision, it says in passing, quote unquote, that they had serious concern with interveners supplementing the record at the appellate level. And it reminds the parties, you know, that the purpose of intervention is, is to be useful and different, but not to add uh, the record, add to the record, and that they must accept the record the way it is. Um, and, and the dissent, on the other hand, notes that the majority is diminishing the role of interveners in this case and, um, and saying, look, they should be allowed to use social science and other legislative fact as evidence. And in fact, our court has relied on that in the past. So you see there the tension, right, that exists. So that's the other thing is because, uh, you know, I mean, I have heard criticism that the, that the court was, or the majority was seemingly trying to uh, rewind uh, it's its decision in, in Fraser from a couple of years back. I can't remember exactly when it was. That was the RCMP uh, pensions thing in which it had re- recognized the adverse effects of discrimination based on sex. And uh, so a different context, but is there anything there? Is there is there an issue there about a, a past decision that they're trying to, I don't know, water down a bit? There, There may be. I think it is interesting to see that they appear to have increased the bar with respect to having to meet that first step of the test about creating a distinction. I, I, I think that, you know, the burden now is appears to be higher on the claimant. There's no doubt about it. Okay, well, that's pretty interesting. Anything else you want to, uh, want to raise or should we move on to um, decisions that are released? W- what's been notable in that, on that front? Well, actually, there, there's been few cases where leave to appeal has been granted, but there's two of them. Um, they are companion cases and, and they involve the media. The first one is CBC versus Coban. Uh, actually, CBC Coban. Um, and then the next one is um, La Presse. Silva, exactly. Exactly. And, and both of them involve the issue of when do you actually order publication ban? Um, and, and in both, you know, especially in the CBC one, you know, the underlying facts are, are quite heartbreaking. And you'll remember that made the headline several years ago. It involves Amanda Todd um, and the story of sexual explo- exploitation. But I think what is interesting here is that in both of these cases, the court's going to have to grapple with not so much, you know, sentencing, but rather the application of horizontal steroid decisis. And you remember that that was an issue that was touched upon by the court in Sullivan. And so I think the court's going to have to go back to that and, and look at, you know, the test that it had set out in Sullivan uh, with respect to the proper approach to steroid decisis. And, uh, and so I think, it, and you'll remember there that Justice Kazir is the one that had held that, you know, the principle of judicial committee uh, you know, that judges treat fellow judges' decision with courtesy and cons- consideration and had talked about the rule of law. And so the issue here will be uh, when should a publication ban be issued and whether or not uh, it should be done before a, a jury has been impaneled. Finally, what hearings are coming up and uh, what should we watch out for? 
Yes. So what is coming up? So let me take a look here. I mean, there's quite a few of them that are, are interesting um, in front of the court in this in December to watch for. So uh, next week we have Mason. Mason is a case that deals with judicial review and the infamous <laughs> standard review in the post Vavilov era. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, lawyers, we loved standard review. <laughs> so there you go. Um, again, the issue is, you know, how do you apply a reasonable test? Um, and I think it, it will be interesting. This is in the context, obviously, of Immigration Refugee Protection Act. So uh, stay tuned for that. The other case to look for is a case being heard in early December. It's called Anderson versus Anderson and one of those rare family law case that made its way to Supreme Court and involves the validity and weight given to interspousal agreement. So I think interesting for those practicing in, in family law. Um, the other case is a case that's actually going to be heard over two days, which, as we know, is not something that happens all the time. That's the case of the Attorney General of Quebec versus Attorney General of Canada. And it involves an appeal of a Court of Appeal of Quebec. It's a reference on the constitutionality of an act respecting First Nation, a federal statute that governs the design and delivery of child and family services in Indigenous community. And the reason why we have two days is because there are over 30 interveners, um, including different organization and attorney general actually uh, appearing in this case. Maybe that's what compelled them to uh, rein, rein things in on other fronts. Maybe. Maybe. Although in this case, there were a few that were denied leave. Um, so who knows? And that's interesting in the context, too, of the uh, of the child welfare issues we're having uh, with Correct. First Nations uh, in Canada. That is true. Absolutely. I agree. Um, okay, so we will be watching out for that. Maybe I should mention a couple to watch out for in 2023, just by name, Eve, so people have that. There's Dick. Yeah, there's Dixon, which is a case also involving First Nation, but we're coming back to Section 15. It also dives into Section 15. And then obviously there's the Commission Scolaire Francophone des Territoires du nord which we talked about a few minutes ago, that's scheduled in, in February. And then something on our radar, and maybe we'll come back to that for another podcast, is the decision out of Alberta that deals with the Impact Assessment Act um, that is heard in March. So that will be an interesting one to uh, keep watching. Yeah, we'll for. talk about that as we get closer to it because uh, it's becoming an interesting sort of battleground uh, for uh, between the provinces and the and the federal government in terms of division of power and how they how they regulate the environment. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us again, Nadia Fendi, uh, and for giving us uh, your Supreme Court briefing. Excellent. My pleasure, Eve. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. Please rate and review us if you can, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to our Droit Moderne podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBANATMAG and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. 